Chapter Four of Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands by Mary Seacole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. I do not think I have ever known what it is to despair, or even to despond. If such were my inclination, I have had some opportunities recently, and it was not long before I began to find out the bright side of Crusoe's life and enter into schemes for staying there. But it would be a week or so before the advent of another crowd would wake Crusoe's to life and activity again, and in the meanwhile, and until I could find a convenient hut for my intended hotel, I remained my brother's guest. But it was destined that I should not be long in Crusoe's, before my medicinal skill and knowledge were put to the test. Before the passengers for Panama had been many days gone, it was found that they had left one of their number behind them, and that one, the cholera. I believe that the faculty have not yet come to the conclusion that the cholera is contagious, and I am not presumptuous enough to forestall them, but my people have always considered it to be so, and the poor Crusoe's folks did not hesitate to say that this new and terrible plague had been a fellow-traveller with the Americans from New Orleans, or some other of its favoured haunts. I had the first intimation of its unwelcome presence in the following abrupt and unpleasant manner. A Spaniard, an old and intimate friend of my brother, had supped with him one evening, and, upon returning home, had been taken ill, and after a short period of intense suffering had died. So sudden and so mysterious a death gave rise to the rumour that he had been poisoned, and suspicion rested for a time, perhaps not unnaturally, upon my brother, in whose company the dead man had last been. Anxious for many reasons, the chief one perhaps the position of my brother, I went down to see the corpse. A single glance at the poor fellow showed me the terrible truth. The distressed face, sunken eyes, cramped limbs, and discoloured, shrivelled skin, were all symptoms which I had been familiar with very recently, and at once I pronounced the cause of death to be cholera. The Crusoe's people were mightily angry with me for expressing such an opinion. Even my brother, although it relieved him of the odium of a great crime, was as annoyed as the rest. But, by twelve o'clock that morning, one of the Spaniard's friends was attacked similarly, and the very people who had been most angry with me a few hours previously came to me now eager for advice. There was no doctor in Crusoe's. The nearest approach to one was a little timid dentist, who was there by accident, and who refused to prescribe for the sufferer, and I was obliged to do my best. Selecting from my medicine-chest—I never travel anywhere without it—what I deemed necessary, I went hastily to the patient, and at once adopted the remedies I considered fit. It was a very obstinate case, but by dint of mustard emetics, warm fomentations, mustard-plasters on the stomach and the back, and calomel, first in large and then in gradually smaller doses, I succeeded in saving my first cholera patient in Crusades. For a few days the terrible disease made such slow progress amongst us that we almost hoped it had passed on its way and spared us. But all at once it spread rapidly, and affrighted faces and cries of woe soon showed how fatally the destroyer was at work. And in so great request were my services, that for days and nights together I scarcely knew what it was to enjoy two successive hours' rest. And here I must pause, to set myself right with my kind reader. 
he or she will not, I hope, think that, in narrating these incidents, I am exalting my poor part in them unduly. I do not deny—it is the only thing, indeed, that I have to be proud of—that I am pleased and gratified when I look back upon my past life, and see times now and then, and places here and there, when and where I have been enabled to benefit my fellow-creatures, suffering from ills my skill could often remedy. Nor do I think that the kind reader will consider this feeling an unworthy one. If it be so, and if, in the following pages, the account of what Providence has given me strength to do on larger fields of action be considered vain or egotistical, still I cannot help narrating them, for my share in them appears to be the one and only claim I have to interest the public ear. Moreover, I shall be sadly disappointed, if those years of life which may still be in store for me are not permitted by Providence to be devoted to similar usefulness. I am not ashamed to confess, for the gratification is, after all, a selfish one, that I love to be of service to those who need a woman's help, and wherever the need arises, on whatever distant shore, I ask no greater or higher privilege than to minister to it. After this explanation, I resume more freely the account of my labours in Crusades. It was scarcely surprising that the cholera should spread rapidly, for fear is its powerful auxiliary, and the Crusades people bowed down before the plague in slavish despair. The Americans, and other foreigners in the place, showed a brave front, but the natives, constitutionally cowardly, made not the feeblest show of resistance. Beyond filling the poor church, and making the priests bring out into the streets figures of tawdry dirty saints, supposed to possess some miraculous influence which they never exerted, before which they prostrated themselves, invoking their aid with passionate prayers and cries, they did nothing. Very likely the saints would have got the credit of helping them, if they had helped themselves, but the poor cowards never stirred a finger to clean out their close, reeking huts, or rid the damp streets of the rotting accumulation of months. I think their chief reliance was on the yellow woman from Jamaica with the cholera medicine. Nor was this surprising, for the Spanish doctor, who was sent for from Panama, became nervous and frightened at the horrors around him, and the people soon saw that he was not familiar with the terrible disease he was called upon to do battle with, and preferred trusting to one who was. It must be understood that many of those who could afford to pay for my services did so handsomely, but the great majority of my patients had nothing better to give their doctress than thanks. The best part of my practice lay amongst the American store and hotel-keepers, the worst among the native boatmen and muleteers. These latter died by scores, and among them I saw some scenes of horror I would fain forget, if it were possible. One terrible night, passed with some of them, has often haunted me. I will endeavour to narrate it, and should the reader be supposed to think it highly coloured and doubtful, I will only tell him that, terrible as it seems, I saw almost as fearful scenes on the Crimean Peninsula among British men, a few thousand miles only from comfort and plenty. It was late in the evening, when the largest mule-owner in Cruces came to me, and implored me to accompany him to his kraal, a short distance from the town, where he said some of his men were dying. One in particular, his head muleteer, a very valuable servant, he was most selfishly anxious for, 
and on the way thither promised me a large remuneration if I should succeed in saving him. Our journey was not a long one, but it rained hard, and the fields were flooded, so that it took us some time to reach the long, low hut which he called his home. I would rather not see such another scene as the interior of that hut presented. Its roof scarcely sheltered its wretched inmates from the searching rain. Its floor was the damp, rank turf, trodden by the mule's hoofs and the muleteer's feet into thick mud. Around, in dirty hammocks and on the damp floor, were the inmates of this wretched place, male and female, the strong and the sick together, breathing air that nearly choked me, accustomed as I had grown to live in impure atmosphere. For beneath the same roof the mules, more valuable to their master than his human servants, were stabled, their forefeet locked, and beside them were heaps of saddles, packs, and harness. The groans of the sufferers, and the anxiety and fear of their comrades, were so painful to hear and witness, that for a few minutes I felt an almost uncontrollable impulse to run out into the stormy night, and flee from this plague-spot. But the weak feeling vanished, and I set about my duty. The mule-owner was so frightened, that he did not hesitate to obey orders, and by my directions doors and shutters were thrown open, fires were lighted, and every effort made to ventilate the place, and then, with the aid of the frightened women, I applied myself to my poor patients. Two were beyond my skill, death alone could give them relief, the others I could help. But no words of mine could induce them to bear their terrible sufferings like men. They screamed and groaned, not like women, for few would have been so craven-hearted, but like children, calling in the intervals of violent pain, upon Jesu, the Madonna, and all the saints of heaven whom their lives had scandalised. I stayed with them until midnight, and then got away for a little time. But I had not long been quiet before the mule-master was after me again. The men were worse, would I return with him? The rain was drifting heavily on the thatched roof, as it only does in tropical climates, and I was tired to death, but I could not resist his appeal. He had brought with him a pair of tall, thick boots, in which I was to wade through the flooded fields, and with some difficulty I again reached the kraal. I found the worst cases sinking fast, one of the others had relapsed, while fear had paralysed the efforts of the rest. At last I restored some order, and with the help of the bravest of the women, fixed up rude screens around the dying men. But no screens could shut out from the others their awful groans and cries for the aid that no mortal power could give them. So the long night passed away, first a death-like stillness behind one screen, and then a sudden silence behind the other, showing that the fierce battle with death was over, and who had been the victor. And meanwhile I sat before the flickering fire, with my last patient in my lap. A poor little brown-faced orphan infant, scarce a year old, was dying in my arms, and I was powerless to save it. It may seem strange, but it is a fact that I thought more of that little child than I did of the men who were struggling for their lives, and prayed very earnestly and solemnly to God to spare it. But it did not please Him to grant my prayer, and towards morning the wee spirit left this sinful world for the home above it had so lately left, 
and what was mortal of the little infant lay dead in my arms. Then it was that I began to think—how the idea first arose in my mind I can hardly say—that, if it were possible to take this little child and examine it, I should learn more of the terrible disease which was sparing neither young nor old, and should know better how to do battle with it. I was not afraid to use my baby patient thus. I knew its fled spirit would not reproach me, for I had done all I could for it in life, had shed tears over it, and prayed for it. It was cold grey dawn, and the rain had ceased, when I followed the man who had taken the dead child away to bury it, and bribed him to carry it by an unfrequented path down to the riverside, and accompany me to the thick retired bush on the opposite bank. Having persuaded him thus much, it was not difficult, with the help of silver arguments, to convince him that it would be for the general benefit, and his own, if I could learn from this poor little thing the secret inner workings of our common foe. And ultimately he stayed by me, and aided me, in my first and last post-mortem examination. It seems a strange deed to accomplish, and I am sure I could not wield the scalpel or the substitute I then used now but at that time the excitement had strung my mind up to a high pitch of courage and determination, and perhaps the daily, almost hourly, scenes of death had made me somewhat callous. I need not linger on this scene, nor give the readers the results of my operation. Although novel to me, and decidedly useful, they were what every medical man well knows. We buried the poor little body beneath a piece of luxuriant turf, and stole back into cruces like guilty things. But the knowledge I had obtained thus strangely was very valuable to me, and was soon put into practice. But that I dreaded boring my readers, I would fain give them some idea of my treatment of this terrible disease. I have no doubt that at first I made some lamentable blunders, and maybe lost patience, which a little later I could have saved. I know I came across, the other day, some notes of cholera medicines which made me shudder, and I dare say they have been used in their turn and found wanting. The simplest remedies were perhaps the best. Mustard plasters, and emetics, and calomel. The mercury applied externally, where the veins were nearest the surface, were my usual resources. Opium I rather dreaded as its effect is to incapacitate the system from making any exertion, and it lulls the patient into a sleep which is often the sleep of death. When my patients felt thirsty, I would give them water in which cinnamon had been boiled. One stubborn attack succumbed to an additional dose of ten grains of sugar of lead, mixed in a pint of water, given in doses of a tablespoonful every quarter of an hour. Another patient, a girl, I rubbed over with warm oil, camphor, and spirits of wine. Above all, I never neglected to apply mustard poultices to the stomach, spine, and neck, and particularly to keep my patient warm about the region of the heart. Nor did I relax my care when the disease had passed by, for danger did not cease when the great foe was beaten off. The patient was left prostrate, strengthening medicines had to be given cautiously, for fever, often of the brain, would follow. But, after all, one great conclusion, which my practice in cholera cases enabled me to come to, was the old one, that few constitutions permitted the use of exactly similar remedies, 
and that the course of treatment which saved one man would, if persisted in, have very likely killed his brother. Generally speaking, the cholera showed premonitory symptoms, such as giddiness, sickness, diarrhoea, or sunken eyes and distressed look. But sometimes the substance followed its forecoming shadow so quickly, and the crisis was so rapid, that there was no time to apply any remedies. An American carpenter complained of giddiness and sickness, warning signs, succeeded so quickly by the worst symptoms of cholera, that in less than an hour his face became of an indigo tint, his limbs were doubled up horribly with violent cramps, and he died. To the convicts, and if there could be grades of wretchedness in cruces, these poor creatures were the lowest, belonged the terrible task of burying the dead, a duty to which they showed the utmost repugnance. Not unfrequently, at some fancied alarm, they would fling down their burden, until at last it became necessary to employ the soldiers to see that they discharged the task allotted to them. Ordinarily the victims were buried immediately after death, with such imperfect rites of sepulture as the harassed, frightened priests would pay them, and very seldom was time afforded by the authorities to the survivors to pay those last offices to the departed, which a Spaniard and a Catholic considers so important. Once I was present at a terrible scene in the house of a new Granada grandee, whose pride and poverty justified many of the old Spanish proverbs levelled at his caste. It was when the cholera was at its height, and yet he had left, perhaps on important business, his wife and family, and gone to Panama for three days. On the day after his departure the plague broke out in his house, and my services were required promptly. I found the miserable household in terrible alarm, and yet confining their exertions to praying to a coarse black priest in a black surplice, who, kneeling beside the couch of the Spanish lady, was praying, in his turn, to some favourite saint in cruces. The sufferer was a beautiful woman, suffering from a violent attack of cholera, with no one to help her, or even to take from her arms the poor little child they had allowed her to retain. In her intervals of comparative freedom from pain, her cries to the Madonna and her husband were heart-rending to hear. I had the greatest difficulty to rout the stupid priest and his as-stupid worshippers, and do what I could for the sufferer. It was very little, and before long the unconscious Spaniard was a widower. Soon after, the authorities came for the body. I never saw such passionate anger and despair as was shown by her relatives and servants, old and young, at the intrusion, rage that she, who had been so exalted in life, should go to her grave like the poor, poor clay she was. Orders were given to bar the door against the convict gang, who had come to discharge their unpleasant duty, and while all were busy decking out the unconscious corpse in gayest attire, none paid any heed to me, bending over the fire with the motherless child, journeying fast to join its dead parent. I had made more than one effort to escape, for I felt more sick and wretched than at any similar scene of woe, but finding exit impossible I turned my back upon them, and attended to the dying child. Nor did I heed their actions, until I heard orders given to admit the burial party, and then I found that they had dressed the corpse in rich white satin, and decked her head with flowers. 
The agitation and excitement of this scene had affected me as no previous horror had done, and I could not help fancying that symptoms were showing themselves in me, with which I was familiar enough in others. Leaving the dying infant to the care of its relatives, when the Spaniard returned he found himself widowed and childless, I hastened to my brother's house. When there, I felt an unpleasant chill come over me, and went to bed at once. Other symptoms followed quickly, and before nightfall I knew full well that my turn had come at last, and that the cholera had attacked me, perhaps its greatest foe in Cruces. End of chapter 4